welcome to the gala first birthday edition of Romaniacs. It's a whole 12 months since we descended into our comfortable bunker in London Soho to discuss the nerve-wracking rollercoaster ride that is Britain's exit from the EU. But what will you do in a year's time when Brexit is all sorted, they told us. <laughs> How little they knew. I'm Dorian Linsky, and for this first birthday edition, we've got a three-line whip with all of our regular presenters crammed into the studio. Ian Dunt is the editor of politics.co.uk, and he was here for the very first show. Hi, Ian. How are you? Hello. Very well indeed. You haven't aged a day. <laughs> Naomi you. Smith is Chief Operating Officer of Best for Britain, here in a personal capacity, of course. Hi, Naomi. Welcome back. Hello. Um, just a very quick reminder to all listeners. Can you please remember to go to the march on the 23rd of June? All the details are at peoplesvote.co.uk slash march, and you can find out about you know getting a coach from your area down to the march and things like that. Really important that we have a big turnout. Our armchair Brexitologist, Peter Collins, was also here with me and Ian for the very first show. Hi, Peter. Hello. And rounding out the team, it's Ros Taylor, Research Manager of the LSE's Truth, Trust and Technology Commission. Hi, Ros. Hi there. Later on, we're going to be looking back at that first show, a classic, and finding out what we've learned in the 12 months of doing Romaniacs, <laughs> if anything. Plus the traditional roundup of Brexit news. But first, we have to apologise for failing to bring home the Listener's Choice Award of this week's British Podcast Awards. Naomi, our producer Andrew and I went along to the event in King's Place, London, right next to The Guardian. And despite a Cambridge Analytica-style campaign to get the vote out and very welcome voting from the Romaniacs audience that put us into the top 20, the Listener's Choice Gong went to the deeply corrupt Simon Mayo and Mark Commode <laughs> of Five Live. <laughs> Who I love, incidentally. I think they're really good. Like, it's they're quite good people to lose to. They're really sweet. Yeah. They're, they're like one of those oddly... Um, I can't believe... I'm now just fucking singing the praises of the winners. But I, but I have to say, th- there is like an emotional thing that, that when you put them on, you actually feel like the world might be okay and might be a nicer place than it actually is. And so for that alone, they like, sort of like deserve us. some credit. Well, hopefully <laughs> we're not. in that sort of league as well. Yeah. <laughs> Naomi, it was quite a fun evening anyway, wasn't it? Yeah, especially for me, because uh, unlike uh, the rest of you, I'm not really a sort of media person. Um, But yeah, we were in a room full of people with a face for radio. It was amazing. Um, The champagne flowed, the air kisses were plentiful, and good old Carrie Ad Lloyd uh, won almost every award for grief cast. Um, uh, So yeah, there was good gender balance, but probably not very good ethnic balance. It was a very, very white turnout, I noticed. Um, But in, you know, full-scale liberal metropolitan elitism... um, we didn't win, uh, but neither did any of our sort of near-rival podcasts. And we did bump into Chris Mason from the BBC, um, who does a, a podcast called Brexit Cast with Katja Adler and Laura Koonsberg and Adam Fleming. Um, and we debated the difference between our shows. Um, and basically it comes down to the fact that ours is a show for those who want to stop Brexit. And uh, most of us don't think that there are any, um, if, if certainly, you know, only a few levers who can be relied upon to tell the truth, uh, which is why we don't really invite any to come on our show, whereas they try to give a slightly more... He was more so BBC. ...nuanced version. Like, he was, ex- he was extremely polite, and he, kept, he asked these really good questions, sort of existential questions, you know, about the kind of referendum and, you know, democracy and what we thought should happen. But I, I, at the end of it, I was none the wiser as to what he thought. I think oh, it was I like was. Pure BBC. <laughs> pure BBC. Oh, okay. Because oh, I, yeah, I, I, I just thought he was being he was being very devil's advocate. I, I find him very brilliant, actually, Christmas. I think he's one of those people at the BBC who's really doing the job properly. I don't necessarily think that for many of the presenters, but his technical knowledge is really, really good. He mm. understands the issues. He understands all the working parts. So just in terms of that core thing of, is this presenter understanding the stuff that they're going to have to ask questions about? I think he performs disproportionately there, well. There were a couple of questions where I was a bit like, can I, can I phone a friend? <laughs> <laughs> Specifically Ian Dunn. Ian on speed dial. <laughs> that, that, of course, is, the, is, is the, the point of the podcast, is that I can turn to you and go, what's going on? <laughs> I couldn't do that there. We'll get to the Brexit news after this important message. Don't forget you can experience live Ramoning on stage when Romaniacs headline the Stoke Newington Literary Festival on Sunday the 3rd of June. We're appearing with special guest Martin Rosen, The Guardian's jaw-dropping political cartoonist, in Stoke Newington's beautiful Art Deco Town Hall. Stoke Newington is in Hackney, the third most Remain voting area in the referendum after, guess it, Lambeth and Gibraltar. So you'll be among friends. There'll be panel conversation, questions from the audience, drinks afterwards and exclusive merchandise on sale. Tickets are at stokenewingtonliteraryfestival.com. That's Sunday the 3rd of June at 6pm. And remember, you can always support Remain via the crowdfunding platform Patreon. If you pledge a few pounds every month to keep the show in rude health, with the accent on rudeness in Ian's case, you'll get stylish <laughs> mugs, T-shirts and bags, plus first dibs on tickets to our future live shows as well. Go to patreon.com slash to find out more. Thanks, Peter. 
Now you can run, but you can't hide. It's Brexit news. <laughs> Firstly, is the Prime Ministerial worm about to turn against the hard Brexiters? This week, a group of Remain Tories, including Justin Greening, Amber Rudd and Damien Green, have been gently reminding the Prime Minister that there are a lot more Remainers on the Tory benches than hardliners. Although they haven't yet gone public, they've been briefing like crazy, reminding the hard Brexiters that if Mogg's European research group triggered a confidence vote, May has the support of 316 Tory MPs to the ERG 70, and that Parliament as a whole would reject hard Brexit anyway. This informal group even has a few sensible leavers on board. Whoever they are. <laughs> um, one senior Tory leaver told Newsnight the Prime Minister will have to face down the ERG. Maybe she also has to sack a Cabinet Minister. Wonder who that might be. Mm. Boris Johnson meanwhile, has taken a break <laughs> from attacking his own PM's ideas as crazy to defend her and ask that she's given time and space to complete a Brexit deal. Ian, what's going on with the, with the Tory Remainers? I, I, I think there's a little bit of... Um, this is the bog-standard sort of push-pull tug-of-war that's been going on in the Tory party for some time, but they are seemingly starting to find their voice. They're seemingly starting to find a lot more confidence and a lot more steel in the way that they operate. The European Research Group, which famously, you know, isn't interested in Europe, does no fucking research and basically exists as a WhatsApp message group. Um, it sort of has a trigger on her prime ministership because, of course, you only need 48 MPs in the Tory party to, to say that there should be, you know, a voice of confidence in her and she'd have to go. Now, there's more than that in the ERG. So that all the time, their finger is on the trigger, finger is on the trigger. The point that is being made here by people like Justin Greening, who again, interestingly, seems to be finding her voice, is, well, they can't beat you even if they set that trigger. But you know what can beat you is if you seem to go completely insane on this thing. The, a lot of this has to do with, uh, hopefully we can talk about this later, is this customs backstop idea that May seems to think might get her out the trenches. Now, most analysis of that is that that will come a cropper with Brussels, because it doesn't do any of the things that they seem to think that it does, and it can't be called a backstop in any realistic way. And I think the fact that that looks like it has no life of its own would suggest that she's going to continue having this problem for the next few months. And what does the, the Tory remain a sensible Brexit uh, look like? <sighs> Fuck knows. I mean, how can you, you know, what would it, because it, it's impossible to see. If you just take the, take the, take, take the island issue, it has to have the single market in it or else it doesn't fix the border problem, as well as the customs union. It's not enough for them just to go a bit more customs union for a bit longer. It's got to be customs union indefinitely, if it's to be a backstop solution, and it needs to be single market, at least on goods. Arguably, you'd need a, a bit more oomph to it than that. And on that basis, it's just impossible to see how the Tory party would support it. And I don't really think that there'd be a majority in Parliament to support it either. I don't think Labour would. Not just because of Jeremy Corbyn, as we've so often said, but also because of the right of the Labour Party. The right of the Labour Party would not support single, sort of single market membership. So on that basis, it's quite hard to see what a moderate Tory leave proposition would look like when it couldn't gain support within the parliamentary party, nor within the Commons as a whole. Yeah, it's, it's quite weird the way that the, the argument in Labour about Brexit uh, often seems to be framed by certain people on Twitter as a kind of, almost like a left versus right issue, as if the kind of the right is is the anti-Brexit thing mm. and they're just trying to undermine Corbyn, when of mm. course you do have a lot of these uh, mm. they're, they're not leavers but they're very legitimate concerns aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> We're in a stage where we should be having a ping-pong back with Europe about our deal and the fact is there's just ping-ponging going in on between the Conservatives and between Labour. Um, on Tuesday night, Paul Wall wrote up a thing about um, the massive bust-up between Prescott and Chuka Amuna at the Labour Party parliamentary meeting on Monday evening. Um, and, and Prescott was really having a go at him over the, really pushing the EEA. Um, and, you know, <laughs> Campbell doesn't agree with him, Blair doesn't agree with him. So it's, it's Blairite on Blairite warfare that's going on. It isn't this sort of left-right, even within the right, they're not agreeing with each other over what the Labour Party line should be. So we're in this mm. horrible situation, two years after the referendum, a year and however many months after we've triggered Article 50 and with just a few months still left to go, where neither the government nor the opposition can get their act together. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Because it's not even... We would say it's an internal British debate, but it isn't. It's no. internal to each party, and then it's internal to the tribes within those parties <laughs> as well, where the debate is. There is no reason, no consistency, no coherence anywhere that you look. Um, Peter, the BBC said the former cabinet ministers have decided to act after concluding it will not be possible to agree a Brexit deal that is accepted by all wings of the Conservative Parliamentary Party. 
As our resident sensible Tory, this has been uh, obvious from the start. <laughs> it has been totally obvious from the start. But I suppose what the one thing that they could claim to be genuinely surprised about is the, 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 the strength and the duration of the grip that the ERG group have on Theresa May, that perhaps they thought, surely, you know, at some point she'll realise that she doesn't, she's not totally in hock to these people and that we exist. Obviously, that hasn't happened. And they're thinking, oh, we have to do something, which is, you know, better late than never, I suppose. Yeah, they they really have an enormous amount of power for like you know we just did the numbers there for a I think it was two one six by the way two one six to seventy not three one oh, six to seventy of course a uh, literal in our script there yes yeah. sorry my mistake yeah that wouldn't make sense um has it has it finally uh, overplayed its hand well I, I think they I mean they've been overplaying their hand all the time yeah. haven't they they've been overdoing it and uh, mm. overbearing in every way possible I think it's more that the other side have realised that actually we have a hand we right. can play mm. here let's. Mm. Let's play it. Yeah, the ERG are largely totally bereft of ideas and they just don't really know what to do next. Um, and so, at least of all, Boris Johnson. Uh, so I think actually Theresa May is probably right to just sort of keep him dangling for now because it's going to become more and more stressful for him. Can, I, I, can I anyone think of a picture of Boris Johnson exactly. dangling? <laughs> String Ros, him up. Ros, Johnson has looked a lot like a man who's trying to be sacked over the past year. Why is he defending May now? Well, I mean, let's get one thing straight about Boris Johnson. He really doesn't mind if we stay in the single market and customs union. He couldn't give a, you know, that's absolutely fine with Boris personally. The trouble is that Boris is now allied with the European Research Group. And so he has to keep feeding them. So what he did today in Buenos Aires was to give a speech where he explained that Theresa May was the custodian of our Brexit and she must make sure that we had the space to negotiate deals um, by leaving the customs union and single market as soon as possible. And in order to to, uh, get those deals, um, Boris himself will need some help. And this help will take the form of a private jet, <laughs> which which he will he will fly around the world to uh, various countries that have so far expressed not a great deal of interest in doing a deal with us. And it will be a brightly coloured jet because the one he has access to at the moment that he has to share with the Queen and Theresa May and other senior cabinet ministers is grey and he doesn't like that. It's just beyond... Anyway, sorry. Um, so, basically, um, what he has done here, tactically, is he has thrown a bone to the ERG and said, I'm still on your side. Meanwhile, he has thrown in a typically Boris, we had the bridge in the past, now it's a private jet, a distractor so that people will talk about that shit rather than the other stuff that he's lying about. And that has long been his strategy. The terrible irony of Boris's position is that he now functions as a, as a link between Remainers and Leavers in the Conservative Party. And that, in a way, continues to be a strength for him because they know he's not really an extremist. Boris is no ideologue. He plays with populist tropes, but he's not an ideologue. He can swing whichever way is good for Boris. Uh, This is the terrible irony of the man who drove us more than anybody else, I think, towards Brexit. Is actually now the bridge between Remainers and Leavers in the Conservative Party. Sometimes it takes somebody utterly immoral to bring us all together. (laughs) (laughs) The funny part is, none of this is necessary. I mean, it's not like anyone listening to this podcast needs to be reminded of that fact. But when you look at all the problems that we have around the island thing, Customs Union membership should be perfectly tolerable to almost anyone, Mm. whichever way they were voting. I can't really remember people bang on that much about trade Mm. deals, which anyway would be of little consequence, either economically or politically, to us once we secured them. If you look, I mean, I was looking today, there's a great Medium post by uh, Rob Ford, who's an academic, works an awful lot of immigration data that he put up on Medium recently. We disagree quite a bit, but uh, he's, he's very, very good on this stuff. And he's been talking about the difference in public attitudes over the last two years on immigration. Unusually positive at the moment, culturally and economically, increasingly positive among leavers, among remainers as well. The space is there politically to make a case for reform of freedom of movement. I don't think it's there to just say everything continues as it was before. But if you can say, as, as we know, within the rules, we're going to set up exit checks. We're going to have a strict three-month rule on making sure someone gets a job or they show that they have the funds or they have to leave. And ideally, maybe an emergency break, which I don't think is beyond the wit of a British negotiating team to have for a few years. You can make that proposition if you're just a little bit canny in negotiation and a little bit courageous in the way that you try to sell these ideas back home. And all of these problems fall away. And yet instead, we're just seeing people scrabbling around in the dirt, fighting with each other over red lines which never needed to exist in the first place and have no reason to continue to exist now. And red jumbo jets. Well, I mean, that is a great reason to fight in a ditch, obviously. I mean, I, I would love my own red dumbbell. 
Moving on, if there's one thing we've learned this past year, it's that you can't trust polls. So let's have a look at what's happening in the polls. <laughs> we've seen three interesting developments this week. Firstly, despite the shambles in the Tory party, not all of it Brexit-related, the Conservatives have built up a four-point lead over Labour, a 43% to Labour's 39% in the latest opinion poll, suggesting that somebody somewhere thinks Theresa May is doing it right. Secondly, the same poll showed that Remainers are losing patience with Jeremy Corbyn. Only 26% of them think Corbyn is doing well on Brexit. I'd like to speak to them. <laughs> <laughs> and thirdly, support for Brexit in Northern Ireland has plummeted as the Irish border question remains unresolved. The region voted to remain by 56% to 44% in 2016, but that gap has expanded. Support for leave is now only 31%. Protestants are now even more in favour of remaining in the single market and customs union than Catholics. And worryingly, there's increasing conviction that a return to border checks would provoke a return to violence in the province. Peter, we'll start with the, uh, the party poll performances. How is such a divided Tory party, led by such a terrible Prime Minister, doing so well? Well, it's indeed. They're doing remarkably well, given the open... You know, here we are, open warfare among ministers. The Foreign Secretary, when it suits him, calling one of the Prime Minister's main policies crazy, but not getting the sack. The Windrush scandal, problems with everything from the NHS to the East Coast Rail franchise. Some of that will be, I think, pro-Brexit Conservatives saying... Good on you, Theresa. You're giving it your best shot, in spite of all of these traitors, and still plugging away. Probably a little bit of rewarding her for just sticking out. The, probably the worst job, one of the worst jobs in the world. Also, this is just my opinion, but it is perhaps that people know that Corbyn is really a terrible, terrible, terrible leader and would not make anything like an acceptable prime minister. And that mm. you know, people are saying, well, you know, uh, what's the alternative? Well, we've got polls, but we've also just had um, a set of recent elections, which are, you know, the polar polls. Um, and, and the breakdown of that basically shows that the Tories are doing well in the towns and Labour is still doing very well in the cities. So it's a, sort of the, the, the national uniform swing is never really something that we can apply. And that's why people often sort of misinterpret polls. But yes, I think, uh, I think there is a, a remain fight back against Corbyn beginning to happen in, in certain swathes of the country. And Ros, we haven't seen across the board popular dissatisfaction with all the party leaders like this since the mid-70s. <coughs> um, is this a kind of, you know, long-term concern for political leadership or is it just that the current crop uh, aren't, aren't good enough, aren't considered good enough? Well, it's good enough until the person comes along who can show, uh, show them up for the inadequates they are. Um, I mean, they are serviceable because nobody else has stepped forward. And this, uh, to me, is one of the tragedies of the post-Brexit period, that there has been so much cowardice. Uh, people who don't believe in Brexit are um, putting Brexit into force. And those same people, some of them, would normally perhaps consider running for the leadership. But they are too scared. Um, they are too scared of the forces they have recently seen unleashed in British politics those populist forces and they are frightened of their political futures at an extremely volatile time and so people are not stepping forward and there is a dearth of vigour and, and a, dearth, a dearth of talent that is prepared to say I am your future and that's what that's what political leaders ought to do there ought to be people stepping forward saying I can do a better job than the, these people and they aren't but it's part of the paralysis isn't it yeah it's not as if there's nobody in either party that's got what it takes yeah but there's a there's a kind of Oh, God, what we need now is stability. Uh, we mustn't step forward or things will get even more crazy and mixed up. I just and wonder also if it's an age thing that, you know, there's a sort of a sort of consensus among pundits that we need a new generation, younger people, blah, blah, blah. Now, if you are one of those younger people, let's say, for instance, David Lammy, I don't know, somebody like that who we had on the mm. podcast the other week, relatively young, they're thinking, well... Uh, I'd like to be that new young leader, but actually being young means I have time on my side, so why risk it now? If, if the moment isn't ripe, if, it, if, it, if we had a sort of somebody just on the cusp of decline who was a future leader, then they might give it a try, I guess. And, and which one of our politicians thinks they can make a success of Brexit? I mean, I just think no one would... It's such a poison chalice. It's such an unwinnable thing. Mm. What, you know, if you are, as you say, you know, a politician who's hoping to have a career for more than the next two years, why would you take it on? 
I mean, we have to, you know, remember, and I don't want to sound like a standard armchair cynic, but most politicians don't, A, they don't know a fucking thing about Brexit in the first place. What they know is, where are my colleagues? You know, and so, of course, that's why you see so many that were supporting Remain, because that was what you did if you wanted a promising career in politics. And then some people afterwards would go, why have they suddenly become so leavy? And you think, well, they become, it's not as if they calculated the arguments and came to a new conclusion. They just thought, oh, the wind is now blowing in this direction, and that, that's therefore where I am. And it's quite rare that you get politicians who be prepared to stand outside of that herd movement. Interesting, I mean, weirdly enough, David Lammy, if you remember him in those first few months after the vote, was saying utterly unsayable things, things that are unsayable even now, of like, well, let's just not do it. You know, we'll just <laughs> fuck all of this. It's a complete madness. Good man. Yeah, exactly. But, it, but that takes a very, very unusual politician to do that, because it basically takes having no view for your career aspirations at the he, point that you He talk. also endorsed Kate Hurry last year ahead of the Snapchat Oh, uh, really? So, uh, yeah. Uh, uh. Pinch of salt. You had to go pop my bubble, didn't you? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'll hear no word against Lammy on this podcast. <laughs> um, we'll be walking down memory lane later, but... Uh, uh, when I was listening to that that first podcast, Ian, you said you'd be crazy as a Remainer to have any faith in Labour right now, <laughs> which sort of still, <laughs> still applies today. And um, Seamus Milne, I read this morning, has apparently blocked meetings of Labour's Brexit subcommittee since February because he disagrees with Starmer's soft Brexit. Um, I mean, I have particular... What's soft Brexit? I'm sorry. Well, no, but <laughs> Starmer's instinct towards that, uh. that there is kind of like they could go further in that direction, but Milne... And, I mean, I have particular animus towards Milne. Mm, for good um, reason. Do you think that he is like... He, you know, people always say, what does Corbyn think? What's Corbyn's position? Do, you, do we think that Milne is sort of a major, major obstacle here. Yeah, well, some people sort of suggest that Corbyn's a little bit scared of making certain statements around Milne, or they know that Milne will then come out and make a harder statement to the opposite, so it makes the party leadership look very divided, because Milne will say whatever he wants to say, regardless of what the leader of the Labour Party has just said. But really, he's just another power block within the party. I mean, the party realistically has almost no policy on Brexit. I mean, it has the customs union membership bit that they've just about gone into position on. But you look at the rest, when they talk about associate membership or whatever, which, which, which clearly for, for some of them, like Starmer means single market, but we'll do a bit of reform of free movement and we'll ask for some voting rights and a couple of agencies that matter. Then that is a depository. It's a phrase, a bit like regulatory alignment was in the December statement between the UK and the EU. It's a phrase that they can just project what they want on. So Starmer has a certain idea of what associate membership means. Um, uh, Barry Gardner has another idea of what it might mean. Uh, Milne will have another, McDonald will have another, Corbyn will have another. They've basically come up with a kind of phraseology that just allows them not to start stabbing each other in an alleyway. But it doesn't mean that there's a coherent policy there, not even one that Milne is in charge of. They're just a bunch of warring fiefdoms. Um, And in other Labour news, Lewis Shamis just selected a pro-Remain candidate, Janet Deby, who uh, quite firmly beat the two candidates from the left, including, you know, the momentum-backed one, um, to replace Heidi Alexander, who, of course, was a, a kind of very passionate Remainer. I thought this was fantastic news. Um, does this does this mean anything on the Brexit front, or was it more to do with, you know, local clashes between the Labour left and right in Lewisham? I mean, on the face of it, you've just replaced one pro single market MP with another pro single market MP. However, I think it did a little bit to to sort of reduce the fear of momentum within the Labour Party. This idea of this unstoppable force. If you say anything against. Uh, Corbyn's policy, especially on Brexit, they would just come at you and gun at you and gun at you. And then when it came down to it, actually not quite as powerful as people had anticipated. And you talk to the people around that thing, they were thinking that they were a much sort of meatier, more weighty political force internally than they eventually transpired to be. So on the individual, I don't think she'll be as strong as Heidi Alexander, but she's on the right page of single market. But I think the important thing is getting rid of some of the fear of momentum. I think Labour know that Remainers are beginning to flex their muscle because what they've done is they've called this very, very quickly and they've selected their candidate very, very quickly. And the candidate is pro-Remain, uh, because what we do know is that the Liberal Democrats are pretty good at by-elections. It's the one one area where they sort of tend to <clears throat> perform above uh, their, their usual um, measure. Uh, and uh, they obviously would have made it uh, totally about Brexit if they, you know, but I think that I think their chances now are absolutely zero. What I find m- maddening thing. was the way that the, the momentum candidate um, was going, well, I would just follow the party whip on Brexit, really kind of making no stand at all. And what's happened is that uh, 
the Brexit issue is just straight mapped on to your support for Corbyn. And you had this farcical situation mm. with Young Labour this week where the chair said, I've been speaking to loads of our members and they're very concerned about Brexit because, of course, they are. They're like young people who vote Labour. Yes, of course, they would. <laughs> Statistically, yes, they would be. And then this committee um, just put out this ridiculous statement, which was more about infighting and evil Blairites and loyalty to Corbyn than it was about the issues of Brexit or indeed the concerns of any of their members. And I just thought, I mean, I know they're young, but I just thought, Christ, you're full of shit. <laughs> you know, and if Corbyn, and you just know that if Corbyn came out the next day because, you know, Seamus Milne had fallen under a bus and went, actually, do you know what? I'm listening to the members and I think we should have, you know, a people's vote or I, Brexit. you just know that 90% of these people, bar the kind of like mm, hardcore legislators, mm. would go, yes. Yes, Jeremy is right and we should definitely have a people's vote. Is the kind of craven party line loyalty points system um, which just kind of makes any kind of honest discussion impossible and I, I just think it's yeah, bloody shambles. It's, 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 hugely, it's hugely frustrating to see and I think this it was very necessary for them to choose someone anti-Brexit in London because they saw in the locals um, a few weeks ago they saw mm. what uh, happened in a number of very anti-Brexit areas, you know, places like Crouch End, uh, Muswell Hill. Momentum candidates, candidates who had been put in place by Momentum got punished for that. And Lewisham is not quite Crouch End, but there are the same forces going on. Crouch End must be our spiritual home, because I swear to God, every time I go out there, someone comes up to me and goes, I really like Romaniacs. <laughs> it's like the only part of the world where that happens every single time. Finally, in poll news, the further collapse of support for leave in Northern Ireland. How can the DUP support a government Brexit strategy that even their own Protestant supporters reject? Because they're terrible people. <laughs> if there's a no-deal exit and a hard border, 53% of Catholics would then support a united Ireland. When we started the show, the Irish border was not considered central to the whole issue. In fact, I don't even remember the first time that it came up. Mm. Uh, and I certainly wasn't hearing about it in the news. Now, it seems to be the most important issue. Um... I still, I, I was wondering how we, stroke everybody else, missed this. Because as soon as it became an issue, I was like, yeah, oh, yeah, obviously. And yeah, I mean, there were a few people talking about it during oh, yeah, the referendum prob- campaign, yeah. but not not with anywhere near the, the level of importance that it probably should have been. Um, from the DUP's perspective, I think they're now in a completely impossible position of just propping up May. Um, it has deep implications for them. Um, and, you know, the prospect of a united island being brought forward, uh, you know, is obviously completely antithetical to everything that they do. What I think is interesting for Remainers with this poll is that when there is something very tangible about what Brexit means, mm. people are moving towards, no, this is a really bad idea, we should, we should remain. So in Northern Ireland, what you've got is a a living memory of violence, of the troubles and of a very, very hard militarised border. And they are now seeing dignitaries from Europe and Ireland and Britain going and inspecting and physically looking at the thing. So for them, Brexit does mean something very, very tangible. Whereas in the rest of the UK, we're still in this slightly phony period of it's all talk, it's all infighting amongst politicians. It all feels very remote. Yes, we felt a little bit of a pinch in our pockets. And, you know, Mark Carney talked about us being £900 worse off now. Uh, per household, but it's not quite the same as feeling something as tangible as the border issue. So I think there is hope for Remainers uh, if, if and when we start, you know, and when I listened to our first podcast uh, again, I heard, you know, Ian talking about, well, of course, you know, what what we're now going to do is to get into the stage where we're really talking mm. about the detail, and that's when it'll all become interesting. <laughs> so sweet, wasn't Bloody it? Uh, <laughs> but anyway, so you know, long story short, being that I think this poll in Northern Ireland is is positive news for Remainers. Finally, a little light relief. Reclusive actor Benedict Cumberbatch is going to play Vote Leave campaign director Dominic Cummings in a new Channel 4 drama about the EU referendum. The film is based on Brexit books by Sunday Times political editor Tim Shipman and ex-Downing Street director of communications Craig Oliver, and it'll go out early next year. Being portrayed by the world-famous heartthrob known for playing Sherlock Holmes, Doctor Strange, Patrick Melrose, Alan Turing and teenage pin-up Julian Assange has to be accorded <laughs> a win for Dominic Cummings, whose own good looks are unorthodox. But at least it gives us a chance to see one version of him in the flesh, given that Cummings has refused to appear before the Digital Culture Media and Sport Committee. Ian, Cummings has the, the reputation for being the brains behind Vote Leave. Obviously, you're not going to cast Cumberbatch unless you're going to 
you know, hinge mm. it around him. Mm. Um, and that's definitely how he appeared in the book as this kind of mastermind. Has that reputation held up? Yes, but the thing is that what Westminster and the Westminster bubble thinks of as being smart is not what I would consider smart. It's basically, you know, you're a bit of a smart aleck, you've got sort of gumption and a little bit of chutzpah. I never can never say that chutzpah. word. Chutzpah. 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 Yeah. So it's, you're right, which is, which, is, which is the kind of cultural, I don't know, having some kind of trouble over that, like, um, which is the kind of cultural thing that gets us into David Davis territory, which is that sort of like, look, oh, I haven't revised my exams, but fuck it, I'm so smart, I'll just go in there and wing the whole thing. In fact, when you look at the last time at Cummings, I don't know if it was the last time, it was in front of a Commons committee, he went up against uh, Andrew Tyree. And Andrew Tyree, the Tory, very, very, just been uh, put up for the Lords, but despite that, is a, is a very intelligent, cerebral person, just systematically, forensically <laughs> tore him apart. But Cummings just doesn't care. It doesn't matter. The truth is of absolutely no consequence. He's that kind of chancer, strategic intellect. Isn't which the I don't word think arrogant? Yeah, well, it's, it's arrogant plus a, a few other bits, but exactly. But it is different. It's a form of intelligence that Westminster loves. That is not about. I mean, to me, when you when you really do meet someone who's powerfully intelligent and very impressive, it's usually because you're presenting them with a lot of information and they have the ability to instantly just get to the heart of what is pertinent about the whole thing. I don't see that from him. I see sort of, yeah, sort of strategic arrogance and a complete lack of interest in the consequences of his actions, which is what Westminster admires. But I'm not sure if many many other people feel that way. And James Graham, uh, who's writing it, has a great track record. He did Labour of Love, This House, Quiz, and the play about the early days of the sun, Inc. Uh, I saw This House and Inc., and both of them were kind of incredible mm. political dramas. Labour of Love was fantastic. Um, that's three, four. Has anyone seen Quiz? <laughs> right. That's at, least, that's at least three out of four. Fantastic. Um, now, most political dramas follow a certain kind of arc, so it's your kind of like, you know, finest hour or a scandal. James Graham is kind of good at giving everybody their their due and kind of reflecting all sides. Um, do we think that he'll be able to turn uh, this story into something which, in which case, in which the baddies won, um, into something that's going to be kind of friendly to Channel 4's uh, chattering classes, LinkedIn dinner party, fast court support? It's going to be difficult. And it's going to be difficult for two reasons. One is there is not a lot of sex in this story so far. Uh, I don't know if anybody's seen it. Yeah. That's good, though. There's a bit. <laughs> Given the people involved. There's, there's a bit with that, with that um, exposure of the, um, of the gay relationship, you know, but that's not really mm. scandal material. Uh, that's, and, and I don't know if anybody has been watching A Very English Scandal on the BBC with Hugh, with Hugh Grant. It's brilliant. It's, it's really good. So good. Yeah, and it's got a lot of sex in it, and that helps any political narrative. <laughs> Secondly, really what happened in this instance was that people conspired, and in, well, may have conspired, but I would say conspired. They got together and they decided to spend more money than they should have done on internet advertising, on social media. Now, that in itself it does not a gripping narrative make. So it, I think what Graham will have to do yeah. is to really bring out the dissembling and the plotting that went on in the background. Yeah. Um, and try to, and, and really double down on that. So I'm not sure, I don't know how, if he can really be that even-handed in this case, but we'll see. Well, he's good in, he was very good in Inc. In the first half, you kind of got the underdog story with Rupert Murdoch and Larry Lamb, and you actually find yourself rooting for Murdoch against, you know, the sneering elites. And you go, yeah, look at this plucky crew putting together a paper that people really want. And then second half, you're like, oh, no. <laughs> so you wonder whether he could, he's going to somehow manage to do that to basically get you kind of rooting for vote leave, but then not. Well, if anybody was... can, I mean, Cumberbatch is the right person to do that. Yeah, so that would be a huge achievement. Doesn't it also mean that it's going to come out, like, just when, like, in March 2019? Because that's going to be—that's a bit harsh. I mean, they could part, like, I mean, really, I'm not going to have to deal with with all of that away. I mean, if, they, if they're basically if, if 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 Brexit cannot be stopped and it takes place in March 2019, and I have to watch a Channel Four doc because you people will make me watch it, <laughs> where it's like, and this is how they did it. It will be like, come on, man, give me a break. Because it's a like it's a really risky thing when you're doing a drama based on the very recent past. I'm not sure when those uh, mm. those Stephen Frears dramas about Blair and Brown. Mm. came out I'm not sure how I don't think it was that as soon after no. I mean, things like mm. the deal yeah and it seems like obviously people are still quite you know angry and upset about these issues so it's like it seems like an incredibly hashtag too soon thing to do yeah 
Like, and you, also, you need to say something. I mean, all of those, the, those were rubbish, the, the thing like the deal. The only one I can think of these that, that worked, I thought, was the Queen with that Helen Mirren one, which was quite soon after, but had something to say about like a change in national character towards sort of public displays of, of emotion mm. that we hadn't had before. But you've got to have something to say. It cannot be just like, here is a bunch of actors doing what the news was two years ago, well, because that is intensely That was the problem with the, uh, the Assange film. Hmm. Hmm. You know. It was. It was sort of was too soon. Also, it's a film about Julian Assange. You mentioned yeah. Julian Assange. So, um, okay, we're quickly going to do some casting. Uh, Boris Johnson. I reckon William Shatner would take the call. <laughs> That's quite a curveball. I was thinking Rufus Jones. Do you know Rufus Jones? No. Very. Uh, he, he's 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 in a lot of things, and I think he can do. He's quite good at playing these kind of like bumptious. Hmm posh wallies with lots of confidence who are <laughs> bunctious posh wallies yeah is a fantastic encapsulation he's I mean he's not Johnson one of them character. himself he's very good at playing them well, uh, um, Ros was just mentioning Hugh Grant and I think he's really really good as Jeremy thought I didn't think he would just an impression of him but also he's got that air of smug public school insouciance uh, Rob mm, you were saying just a yeah. minute ago you know, I, can, I can wing this now if you put him in a blonde wig and a fat suit <laughs> I think it would work this is why you don't work in TV fat suit um, Aaron, ba- Aaron Banks. No, I just like the idea that you would just sort of bring in this big sponge, yeah. like in Austin Powers. Eddie Marsden, Aaron Banks. Oh, I was thinking kind of. Yeah, I was thinking Winston. Ooh. <laughs> For that kind of that slight kneecapping in a pub car park. <laughs> I was thinking the other end of the spectrum, Peter Kay. <laughs> yeah, I've had Peter Kay. I've had Peter Kay as well. Yeah. Uh, Theresa May. Francis oh. Dillatour, who played Madame Maxine and Harry Potter. Yeah. I was going to suggest just getting Jan Ravens in from Dead Ringers, who does her on Dead Ringers, because she's got that um, wobbly up and down voice, as Jan Ravens herself says that uh, Theresa May provides her own descant. Uh, so that's sort of very strange up and down voice. That she, does. <laughs> she does it perfectly. Yeah. Why, why mess with success, I'd say. Or do a CGI one Apollo with you Grady. doing the voice. Paul O'Grady, yes. <laughs> and Gove. Ben Whishaw. Pop. Ooh. <laughs> I, I had two suggestions. One was John Sessions, because I think he would be good at capturing that unctuous side yeah. of the person. Or, if we had uh, Steve Pemberton or somebody like that, would be one of the other characters, Mark Gattis. I think. Yeah. Again, the, oh, sort of, yeah, the, slightly, yeah. the slightly Uriah Heap nature of, 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 the, of the presentation. You know what I mean? They'd be good at that. So it's our first birthday show and 12 months since Ian, Peter and I sat down in this very room to try and make sense of Brexit feels like both five minutes and a hundred years. Since then we've been joined by Ros and Naomi, we've got our lovely theme tune from Corner Shop. We've seen the ugly side of psychoanalytics and the Leave Campaign's dirty tricks. We've heard David Davis's excuses about how the dog ate his Brexit impact assessments (laughs) and we've been constantly amazed that so much can happen and yet so little. So we thought we'd look back on the first year of Romaniacs while hoping that there won't be too many more of them. As a little exercise, we all went back and listened to that very first episode, which now sounds touchingly naive in its belief that the progress would be made and decisions <laughs> and so forth. Um, Rosanem, you, you weren't on that show, but apart from its evident brilliance, what did you make of it? Well, the big thing that struck me was how little has changed. Um, there was massive uncertainty and there continues to be massive uncertainty. Um, there was also a lot less swearing. <laughs> I was quite ashamed of myself for that actually when I heard it back. I was like, I haven't sworn once in that thing. I guess you have to like. I think. It... I think Peter swore. Did I? Ooh, I think there he? may have been what, but it was a sort of you know. I think yeah. you were sort of trying not to, but you sort of, yeah. I think there may have been an F bomb. I think you, you used a word instead of shit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like Blackadder. They swapped the roles in series two. That um, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. Aldrich was the yeah. fool in series two. He was the wise man in series one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was the sweary one in series. Because yeah, there's a real the sweary thing is kind of funny, right? Because you you have a real like if you swear a lot in real life, you usually have a thing that when there's a mic. 
it, it triggers that bit of your brain of don't swear, which is generally speaking a very good thing to do if you want to have any kind of career that involves TV or radio <laughs> as a political pundit. And, and so it's quite to get past that this is the object that I'm looking at and then for swear words to come out is there. And I remember actually after like a few months of doing this show, I became really quite worried that I was like, it's going to break the seal. And just halfway through something on Sky News, you're just going to be like, those cunts. <laughs> it'd, be your, it'd be your Bill Grundy moment. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> Nothing. Just a, a naughty word. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing, Peter, you said was, I want to make it clear that Theresa May and the Conservatives are the worst bunch of politicians in Britain, apart from all the rest. Indeed. Uh, it doesn't sound like you've, you've shifted on that. Well, and nor have the opinion polls. I mean, that's what the opinion mm. polls are saying. They're certainly not the best bunch, but they're not the worst. Not <laughs> Peter's words, but the words of the British but public. People have spoken. <laughs> it's the word of the people, yes. Um, so what did we uh, predict accurately, Peter and Ian, and, and what did we get wrong? Well, one thing I got wrong, uh, I, should, um, I should be the one to own up to, is I thought there'd be a breakdown in the talks by now, that, you know, there were so many complications, the timetable was so tight that I thought, surely we'll have a, a kind of storming out type thing. But we didn't. Uh, what, maybe what's remarkable is that the EU side has been so united. Um, you know, you haven't, we haven't heard different briefings from Paris, from Berlin, all the way through this. Mm. They've, they've kept the line and they've been quite clever. Um, at, you know, anticipating stuff, giving just enough um, way. For instance, at the stage when they decided we could move on, they, there wasn't really enough reason to, for them to move on, but they thought, we'll let them move on, because otherwise we'll be blamed for the talks breaking down. So that, that's why I was wrong, basically. The EU side has been doing its job better than we might have expected. Yeah, and I, I definitely got wrong on the idea of how quickly there would be substance to the discussion, <laughs> seeing as we're still waiting on that. Um, so that, that's there. But it's also, I suppose at that stage, it wasn't quite clear to us how political parties would need to weaponize ambiguity in order to survive the sort of the stretching out mm. of their own electoral coalitions mm. on the Tory and the Labour side and just how useful a tactic that was and how well it could survive through negotiations, actually, because you would have thought that negotiations would force that stuff to the fore. But actually, you know, politicians are, are usually quite skilled at using language that can be interpreted in a variety of ways and that consciously sucks the meaning out so that people can't really tell what it is that you're actually doing. Mm. Um, and, and they've proven to be probably more effective at that than, than we anticipated, certainly than I anticipated. It's pretty much the only thing that they've over-accomplished in. Well, the one thing that, that struck me was how, um, and I remember feeling this, like how little awareness I had of how, how high the stakes were during that election. Because we were just like, oh, oh, bloody election. And it was only when researching that, that Guardian feature about the kind of Stop Brexit movement that, and trying to create a narrative and realising that, you know, that the first year was just this kind of wasteland for them. And everything changed. Like, instantly, on the night of the election, there were people like Chukramuna going, oh, right, now it's game on. Mm. All these activists. Mm. And I just didn't realise that at the time, just what a huge difference it made, nor um, what a huge, even when the sort of later ones were analysing the election, nor what a, a, a big role Brexit played in the um, in the result, because the, those sort of that research was done later in the summer, and I think I kind of swallowed the line that it was just it was all to do with sort of Corbyn's fantastic campaign and May's terrible one. And so it seems sort of weird now when people are going like that was it. It was sort of it was sort of do or die. Had she won a landslide, it would all have been over. And I did not feel like that at the time at all. I didn't quite understand all the moving parts. Mm. I think I probably thought we would have the government would have collapsed by now after last year's general election. I didn't see this government managing to limp on as long as it has. So to your sort of stretching ambiguity as mm. a <laughs> a factor that helps your survival. Um, you know, we are supposed to be in the final straits of Brexit and it just doesn't feel like we are at all because of this total lack of certainty. And I think a year ago, none of us could have believed that we'd still... I mean, I'd have laughed if you'd said, well, in a year's time, we still won't have a position from the government on what, what it is that they want. Um, and I think the royal wedding last weekend created this really surreal feeling and provided this like major distraction from the ridiculousness for sort of four or five days. And I sort of think we're just beginning to emerge from that now, news-wise. Um, and, and the depression of how little time we've got left and how much there still is to do is, is hitting. I was actually quite... I'm not pro-royal, but I was quite pro-distraction because I think, as a couple of people pointed out on Twitter, it's just like every... You know, every day is just like a shitstorm yeah. of bad news. 
And to be there, to be on sort of Twitter on Saturday, complaining, because for a few hours some people were going, oh, you know, that looks nice. You know, the, the Reverend made a good, you know, the American preacher made a, made a good speech. They seemed to be in love. You know, Stand By Me sounded good. And for people to go, it's just a distraction. <laughs> and it's like, yes, yeah, sometimes people need distractions, otherwise they go mental. It was weirdly unifying, actually, from from a sort of leave remain point of view, the royal wedding, because the sort of multicultural elements to it, and probably her own sense of identity, and that sense that she is probably quite progressive and calls herself a feminist, and blah, blah, combined with it sort of allows the sort of more remaining minded to get on board, and then you have yeah. the more royalist traditionalists obviously able to get on board because it's a royal wedding. And for a moment, you got rid of that narrative of oh, it's we're such a divided country, blah blah blah. blah. Apparently, everybody loved that sermon that you wrote. I thought it was the most turgid, tedious, cliched American fucking hogwash that I'd heard in years but apparently everybody thought it was completely remarkable and so there was at least a moment to sort of passing unified sentiment which was actually quite pleasant actually I have to say I hadn't expected to feel that there would still be a lot to play for compared with a year ago um, I, I thought, uh, yeah, last, last year I thought in a few months this law be over will be, it'll be hard Brexit uh, it'll just be, it's going to be awful. But actually, I still suspect it could be reversed in some way. I'm not exactly sure how. I still think it could end up being a soft Brexit. It's not wrapped up yet. It's not finished yet. And I mean, that's why we're mm. still here, isn't it? Mm. Otherwise, we wouldn't be. We're still talking about all the different mm. things that could happen. Um, I honestly have nowhere else to go, so I will probably come anyway. <laughs> well, I, mean, I, quit, I quit my job to go and join a, an organisation that's trying to stop Brexit because of that exact exact point, Rose. You know, this time last year, I felt like there was still a chance we could stop Brexit, but it was a very, very, very small chance. As Chuka mentioned, after the general election, it sort of became a game on again. Um, and, and the drift, I think, has been towards it. So, you know, I, I do still think there is a... A, a, a significant chance and a growing chance that we can still stop well, Brexit. Peter said, I think it will be like the Iraq war. In a year's time, a lot more people will say they were against it than were at the time. And he's, and I think, Ian, maybe you said, well, that you know, there, there won't be a second referendum, uh, people's vote, uh, until there's sort of public demand. The polls have not shifted, I think, as much as, as I expected, because... I suppose I had a lot of faith in people looking at the evidence. Well, you're talking about what happened in Northern Ireland, you know, but I, I didn't think it would have to be the prospect of political violence that would make people look at all of the evidence and go, you know, you know what, it's no, it's no shame. It's, it's fine to, to sort of to be wrong, or not even to be wrong, to feel that you were right then, but to change your mind based on the evidence. Um, and yet, it still se- they still seem really sort of stubborn, I don't think I expected the camps to be so uh, cemented in place. Yeah, I think um, one reason is something I, I, I managed to get right, sort of, apart from all of my errors in the first one, which is I mentioned the possibility that a global boom will make the economical effects of Brexit not be noticeable. That's mm-hmm. essentially what's happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Mark Carney says um, households have lost £900 um, since, since the, the vote, what he means is that there's there's £900 less coming in than there would have been. Nobody has actually suffered. Well, on average, people have not suffered a fall of £900. Mm. It is that they could have been £900 better off. And it's harder to notice that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, anything that was... I, I've kind of lost any hope of there being any kind of public swell against Brexit before the thing takes place. I mean, I think there may well be afterwards. But before the thing takes place, I mean, I think it would have happened already. And in terms of the sort of the decline of sterling against inflation, I mean, that's sort of being gradually cancelled out in terms of the economic effects of it. I would also, that sort of idea of there would only be another referendum because of a public outcry is certainly not where I am right now. In fact, quite the other week, I was sort of saying Mm. it's, it's sort of the opposite. It's because enough parliamentarians would consider it the least bad option for their various incentives that I think it would be most likely to take place now. So, yes, almost the exact opposite of what I said one year ago. Well, something's changed. Um, I think, Naomi, you mentioned, you brought up uh, the other week this sort of problem that Remainers might face and that that they may be divided over... um, whether to go for a very soft Brexit, if that's on the table, or just to keep fighting, because if you oppose... Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we obviously here oppose yeah. all forms of Brexit, but then it becomes like a strategic choice. Do you, do you just think, look, we're not going to be able to stop it, so we might as well take this very watered-down version? Mm. Or do you kind of, like, stick to your guns and try and defeat it the way that the, yeah. the People's Vote people are proposing? 
Um, where do we, and we weren't all here that week, so, I mean, you're not going to pin you to this decision, but where, where are we all sort of uh, positioned there? If it's about, you know, whether we should go for a soft Brexit rather than something worse, you know, that's a, that's a common question, but it is a false question because Remainers campaigning for soft, for a soft Brexit is, is fictitious because what is soft Brexit? Um, it's not on the table from the EU or the British government at the moment. Um, and, and Remainers' contribution should not be about compromising on our principles, but about being bold and providing, you know, much more of a counterweight. We aren't part of the conversation, you know. Those, those, those Remainers, we're, we're not, right? So I just don't really see what there is to gain by any kind of tri- triangulation over this. You know, there's sort of triangulation zealots that are the ones that are really sort of pushing EEA. But but triangulation in Blair years was a tactic to achieve another ends. It wasn't an ends in and of itself. Um, and, and that's the problem that we've got. You know, it, it isn't too late. And I think we have to stick to our guns and our principles on it and keep pushing for soft Brexit. Oh, sorry, for, for, for stopping Brexit. Um, because, you know, otherwise we're presupposing that we're part of a conversation that we're not. Um, and I think whether or not the, the Conservatives can pull off Brexit probably relies on Corbyn choosing to walk through with the lobby, through the lobby with the government rather than with Jacob Rees-Mogg. Um, Ros, imagine this is a game show. One of those game shows where you've got... It? Where they go, <laughs> here's your prize money. Now, you can walk out the door right now with that prize money, which would be a very soft Brexit. Or you can gamble for defeating Brexit entirely. But if you lose, then you get hard Brexit. Well, as Naomi says, I don't think that's the choice on offer. It is literally the game show that I've invented. (laughs) The rules of my invention are very strict. Um, All policy uh, is ultimately a compromise. Uh, I think all you can do is exert pressure on people to make the most sensible policy. And you probably won't get everything you want. That said... Uh, as Naomi says, uh, you still have to fight as though you will get everything that you want. Otherwise, it's going to be insincere and it's going to be half-hearted. So on the one hand, it's tempting to say, I'd rather have my finger cut off than my hand. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd rather have a soft Brexit than a hard Brexit. I think what I believe in is no Brexit at all. And if it ends up being a soft Brexit, that may happen in the future. But for the moment... You have to carry on arguing for against Brexit, the whole thing. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. I do feel you don't need to. Um, I mean, it's an unfair question in some ways because you don't have to make that choice yet. Why? I mean, obviously, this is what the Labour and Tory leaderships are saying. Why make a choice before you have to? And it's like, I, and there's also that thing, that psychological thing. Whereas, if you don't have, if right from the start there had been no firm Remainer voice, would we have got? as many concessions with the, the, exactly. the conversation have moved. You, you, you need that. Yeah. You've got to remember that most uh, politicians, most people in public life were pro-Remain. And what we have now is a bizarre situation where those people have been forced on to leave and many of them onto the most extreme, the hardest version of leave. And so it's important to keep your mind almost where most people were two or th- uh, three years ago, which is where hard Brexit was pretty much inconceivable, and not lose sight of realism and not be driven driven off the centre ground uh, and, and, and forced to, to you know, occupy some other ground yeah. because other people have become more extreme. I, I think that's the key thing here, to try and drag the whole debate back to reality and away from the ideologues. But this is why I see that the, those two approaches, the soft Brexit and the Remain approach, ultimately complement each other. I don't have this impression that they are mutually exclusive. I think if you have people who are holding that line, sort of the, the pin of the Overton window or whatever in the one side, it helps soft Brexiters to make the case yeah. for, for it being more of a compromise. When you have soft Brexit people who are pointing out the problems with what's going on in the Irish border, with what happens to your economy if you leave the single market, with what goes on in the customs union, it makes it easier for the other side to make their case. I do think in the end... We can get to a point when you and I, Naomi, were discussing it last time. I think it will be when that withdrawal treaty comes to the Commons that that, if there's soft Brexit achieved in that, then there would be a split and remain between those who would take the the safe option of, right, okay, so let's limit the damage or the other way. Until that point, and we're months away from that, I think that those fighting for soft Brexit and those fighting for remain are ultimately helping one another by having the two-pronged strategy. And certainly that the whole thing has worked better 
after that first year after the referendum when people stopped fighting internally on those ideas and thought, you know what, there's no reason for us to fight. We need to take the fight to the Brexiters, which is where it should be. But there's this kind of like nerve-wracking feeling of approaching like, you know, the sort of season finale. <laughs> no decisions will have to be made, mm. finally, which they weren't over the past year, but they will have to be made on all sides. Um, finally, I just want to ask everyone's... Can everyone pick a guest that they particularly... Uh, Oh, here, Shah, the comedian. You had him on really early on, actually. And um, he is brilliant. And, uh, yeah, listeners should look his website up and go and see him because I think he's fantastic. He was Because so, we, we actually said last time when we had Femi, we were like, we haven't had any young people on for a while. And actually, when he came on, the, the whole... I remember the way he took He was... I still remember now he said, yeah, it's almost like we've massively murked ourselves. And I just thought, like, oh, that's not the kind of language we usually get on this programme, actually. <laughs> like, it was really yeah. refreshing. I thought Alexandre was great, actually. Um, our, our Greek friend, who we might even hear a little tiny bit of later in the show. <laughs> I thought he was great. You should invite him back, basically. Very witty man. Ros? It was great to have Jay Rayner, because he just yeah. took the discussion onto food and what food Brexit means for food, and that was really eye-opening. Ian? I would go with Alexandreo as well. I, I remember there was a point where he was talking... I don't know if it's him and Philippe Auclair, the, the, the French football writer. The two of them, when they were talking about their experience of being an EU citizen, and there's a moment with, with Philip when... Where they were talking about the, the, the sort of form of citizenship that would be offered to EU citizens, and he was just like, I'm not fucking taking it. He's like, I don't care what the consequences yeah. are. And I remember it was one of those first moments in the podcast where sort of like the hair on the back of my neck went up, and I was like, oh, fuck, like, we're working through shit in this room right now. It's happening. And I got the same with, with Alex, actually, when he was talking about talking to Corbyn supporters about his own identity and his status in the country, and he just thought, like, no, this is we're, we're doing something that sort of matters in this room by having that voice and having it expressed in that way. The two of them were just fucking amazing. Well, I think, I mean, conversely, the conversation I probably most enjoyed was someone who needs no exposure whatsoever, which was uh, which was James O'Brien, because I think it, <laughs> it ran quite long, and it just felt like you could really... It reminded me what I like about this format as opposed to radio formats, where you can really kind of go deep. You can explore lots of issues core to Brexit, but also the cultural stuff, stuff about the media's role, um, have sort of jokes and anecdotes. And it, I felt like, oh, this is a good... This is a good thing that we can do here. But mm. I, actually, I think probably the people that I kind of... When I thought, oh, this is going to work, was when I think in a row we had Nick... Not coming with the exact order, but Nick Cohen, Gina Miller and Al Murray. Mm. You know, and it's, it's always, you're always grateful for the people that come on early when there isn't some huge prestige to it. Likewise with Heidi Alexander as the first MP. Mm. Um, and then I felt like, oh, right, no, this is going somewhere. Because mm. we've got, we've got a, a, a prominent activist, a journalist and um, a comedian. And they're all really good. It's hard to wonder, it's hard to understand from an MP's perspective what it takes to go to a little studio in Soho and just be like, on, on, really go into a basement, which is basically <laughs> where we are, which no one can hear, but it is incredibly hot and uncomfortable in here. And you sort of think, like, you're taking a risk always with your reputation and that sort of thing. And once you get the first MP on, mm. you can make the case for more. But I think for her to, to have done it was genuinely quite a brave thing in the first place and it helped us quite a bit. Yeah. Maybe and she knew she then she wasn't going to be there. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe she was like, I, I fucked it, I better leave. Um, but obviously we're extremely grateful for, for everyone who's agreed to come into our clammy bunker. <laughs> Finally, what's a birthday party without some games? Mr David Whitley on Twitter got us thinking about which movies most represent Brexit. He said it was Barney A as Daniel Day-Lewis in the I Drink Your Milkshake scene of There Will Be Blood. <laughs> Ian said, we're Jeff Goldblum in The Fly, doing a mad experiment, a short period in which we feel a huge burst of strength, then bits of our bodies start falling off. <laughs> so we're going to ask the panel, what are the most Brexit movies out there? And in the interest of BBC Balance, what are the most Remain movies? Uh, start with Naomi. So my choice of Brexit movie is Apocalypse Now, because the further you travel up the Brexit River, the crazier it all becomes. And, uh, and Willard does this brilliant quote where he said, I wanted a mission and for my sins they gave me one. And when it was over, I never wanted another. Uh, I, I, so I think if that doesn't sum up Brexit, nothing does. And for Remain, of course, being Pimlicat, uh, I choose Passport to Pimlico because it beautifully mocks how enticing yet deceitful any kind of rushed sovereignty can be. Uh, and by the end, everyone realises that breaking away was totally delusional and they all go back to how it was before and live happily ever after. 
Peter, how about you? Uh, my nomination for Brexity film is Carry On Abroad, made in 1972. <laughs> Such a <laughs> choice. It is unbelievable. Does it hold up politically? <laughs> well, in, these, in these woke times? It's, it's a, it, I'm sure absolutely not. It's a send-up of Brits going to Spanish package holidays. Peter Butterworth plays a Spanish hotel manager, just to give you some idea of how politically incorrect it is. Uh, of course, the hotel is half-built. There's a womanising Spanish waiter. There's a bit of racism here. There's what are we going to do with the Spanish? <laughs> very, very, very Brexity. Uh, my, my choice for Remainer film is um, one of my all-time favourite films, Diva, 1981 film, Jean-Jacques Benet. Uh, uh, it's a sort of comedy caper about a young Parisian postman who's obsessed with an opera singer uh, who then gets pursued by a bunch of goons who want to... Uh, cheat, uh, grab this tape back that they think he's got that's incriminating. It was a bit of a craze when I was at university. It was a slow burner, then the American critics noticed it, and suddenly it became a success. So it's in French, um, so it's not one for Brexiters. It's got a French director, French cast. Uh, there's a hint of interracial romance, lots of seductive French scenery and music, a beautiful vintage Citroën car. Can you imagine Brexiters liking this? And so continental. And free movement of and free people movement and goods? People, yes. Good. <laughs> Um, Ian, you had the fly as your Brexit movie. What's your Remain movie? I, I want um, A Separation, which is an Iranian film about a divorce, um, which, and it's not just because I saw it this week, and it's the last film I've seen, <laughs> so it's fresh in my mind. Um, it is it, one of... It's one of those films where it's set in this utterly alien culture. It's about people sort of walking out, working out the separation in front of a variety of sort of civil authorities, whether it's judges or sort of or police investigators. And it is utterly alien in every way. It's almost like a, it's almost a sci-fi level of you just thinking, like, my God, this society is insane. And yet all of the stuff that it deals with is completely universal of what it is, you know, to suddenly feel distant from someone, how someone can be fundamentally good, but then also full of weaknesses or the manner in which your emotional instincts don't always correspond with your rational instincts. And that kind of universal experience in the heart of something completely alien and foreign is the sort of complexity and sort of um, uniting impact that most of the ideas around separation, around borders, around walls, the kind of new reactionary identity politics surge is completely against. So for that reason, yeah, it's got to be a separation and absolutely not, I assure you, because it is the last film that I watched. <laughs> All right, sight and sound. Roz. <laughs> Roz, what are your choices? Well, the most Brexity movie for me is Jurassic Park because you've got an island. You've got an island and you've got a lunatic idea of some dinosaur DNA and bringing it alive to make dinosaurs again and then bringing a load of people in and it's all going to be fine. And then suddenly you're sitting on the loo and a dinosaur's biting your head off. But at the same time, you can't stop watching because it was such a bloody crazy idea, but it's so compelling to watch. And that, you know, I think quite a lot of people voted for Brexit because they thought it was a really out there idea and they wanted to see what would happen. And that's Jurassic Park, isn't it? It's amazing. Uh, in terms of Remain, um, I think Brief Encounter, actually, because Brief Encounter is, is it's a very British movie and it's basically about someone coming into your life and making it more interesting and more exciting. And you think about eloping with them and you're just getting to know them really well. And then they're snatched away. And that's really the right thing to do because it's the will of the people. <laughs> as, as Noel Cowd's famous final line says, sorry, love, it's the will of the people. OK, my, my Brexit movie is, is Children of Men, which is about a kind of ice, grubby, isolated, decaying, xenophobic society <laughs> eating itself. <laughs> Uh, and my Remain movie is The Third Man, and not just because it features an enterprising Brit exploiting trade opportunities in the heart of Europe, <laughs> but because it's, it's set in the Europe that spawned the idea of the European Union, this sort of hideous, um, this hideous sort of war-shattered mess and the desire to make something of it. Um, Plus, Harry Lyme, of course, has some good things to say about the uh, the Swiss option. <laughs> <laughs> and that brings us to the end of the show, which means it's time to choose something to go in our Brexit time capsule. This is where we save something for the future that we're going to miss if we leave the EU or something we'll need if we're out. Peter, it's your turn. Well, since it's the anniversary edition, I want to cheat a little bit and propose something that probably no one or very few people will miss. What I want to lock away in the Brexit time capsule, at least for the next 10 years 
is me. After a year of reading endless articles with James, with Reese Mogg's ugly mug smiling smugly at the top of them, I think I'm going to vomit if I see any more of them. So I hereby request, put me in the capsule, come back in 10 years, 2028, and I have a horrible feeling that even then we'll still be talking about the same stuff. <laughs> and that was Peter's way of saying that, unfortunately, he's going to be leaving Romaniacs to spend more time with the things in life that aren't Brexit. <laughs> like the fun, pleasurable, joy-bringing things. Uh, and just want to say what a pleasure it's been co-hosting with him for the past year. And uh, we'll miss him very much, yeah, much yeah, like yeah. the European Union. Yeah. See you, mate. And that's the end of the show. Thanks to Naomi, Roz, Peter and Ian. We'll see you all soon. For our European language clip, here's a bit of the aforementioned Alexandreou with some Greek. Bravo, dynami Vretania. Η Ελλάδα θέλει να μείνετε. Now please wave your hands in the air for our theme tune. A vast improvement on the uh, on the first episode's theme tune. Deemed as a monster by Corner Shop and the return of the traditional roll call of Patreon backers. Thanks from me to Matthew Cooper, Gareth Hayes, Anonymous and Martin Hetherington. Hello and thanks from me to Justin Milner, Mark Neald, Rob Bennett and Alexander Sawyer. It's a big thank you from me to Orna Salinger, Dillis Allam, Kushler and Nicola Paffard. Thanks and hello to James Christopher Redmond, Pete Boardman, Amanda Pierce, and Kevin Giblin. And finally, my thanks to Helena Waters, Philippa Hammond, Richard Linter, and David Farby. Uh, it's been a great pleasure to spend the last year with all these people in a hot room. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs> Romaniacs is presented by Dory Adensky with Naomi Smith, Ros Taylor, Ian Dunt and the irreplaceable Peter Collins. The producer was mate Andrew Harrison. Studio production was by Sophie Black. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.